Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In this episode, we will continue to tell you the fascinating story of Elizabeth Borden, a woman once and still notoriously known simply as Lizzie. At the end of our last episode, after successfully contacting and talking with who we believed was actually the entity of Elizabeth, our questions answered emphatically via the use of dowsing rods. Suddenly, the rods went dead. She seemingly refused to communicate with us any further. We decided to take a break and go outside for a cigarette, regroup, and resume what we hoped would be her return to our conversation. We, of course, left the recorder on when we left the room, just in case. We were gone about 10 minutes. As you heard in the last episode, when we returned, the door to Lisbeth's room was open. The door to her sister Emma's room was closed, and the light was on. That's not how we left it. Upon listening to the recording, you can clearly hear that no one seems to enter the room. But about halfway through... You can clearly hear Emma's door creak closed, and then... The door shuts. Yet again, no one can be heard entering the room. And upon further close listening, we could hear a presence. Someone going through our ghost hunting paraphernalia that was left upon Lisbeth's bed, right next to the recorder. The rustling of the equipment lasted nearly two minutes. Not so easy to hear on a podcast, but here is a snippet. Probably hard to hear, but trust us, it's there. And no one is heard exiting the room as we climb the stairs and then notice that Lisbeth's door is open. It was indeed, well, kind of creepy. But we quickly concluded that while Lisbeth had shut down her conversation with us, she was still here. And she wanted us to know that. She was a powerful presence, opening and closing doors and turning on lights. She was also probably curious about what we were doing and anxious to find out more about us. We resumed the conversation again with dowsing rods and started the new session with an apology. She immediately re-engaged with us. Even spirits seem to appreciate when you simply say, 
I'm sorry. Um, I just want to apologize. Um, we just realized something that I was calling you Lizzie. Um, that was too familiar. I'm sorry about that. And we've just realized that later in your life, after the trial, you started using the name Lizbeth. So that's what I will call you. That's how you identify yourself. And I'm sure that um, the name Lizzie brings up all kinds of connotations of things that you might not want to think about. So I apologize for presuming what your name was or how you wanted to be called. So unless you object, um, I'll be calling you Lizbeth from now on. So let's just see. Um, again, with the dowsing rods, you clearly know how to use them. Um, is, is, remember our signal for yes or no, neutral position. Okay. Speaking to Lisbeth. Do you still want to talk with us? Oh my. Yes. That's a yes. Yes. Very good. We are so, we were just outside talking about how thrilled we are to be talking to you. I gotta ask you something to, to, to verify what we've heard. First of all, we love the color of this house, this dark green and then the green dark trim. Well, we heard today that there was a painter that was about to paint the outside of the house and your father said, uh, Lisbeth gets to pick the color, or he said Lizzie then, of course. Elizabeth gets to pick the color. And then, I'm not sure you know this, but later that the uh, painter said that you had chosen something very drab and dark. We love it. Here is the question we are dying to know. Did you, the, the colors that you picked, is that the colors of the house right now? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we absolutely love it. We love the color. As a matter of fact, I sent a picture to my mom when we came here, a photograph. And she's like, first thing she says was, oh my God, I love the color of that house so much. <laughs> so you chose a perfect color for the house and we're very, very thrilled um, that this is the color that you picked and we actually get to see that. So kudos to you. Then, we asked her if there was someone else in the room. Her answer floored us. I just want to make sure that we're authentically talking to you and that you understand the yes and no so that we know what you're saying is true. But that's also, I saw you look over there once and I've seen like some, it, it could be cars, I don't know. But like the fact that it was moving like that way, like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed anything. Do you think that maybe she's... Right here? To your left? Let me ask you. something? Let me ask. Ooh. Or someone? So, Elizabeth, let me ask you this. Is there someone else in this house, too? There's a lot of folks in this house. <laughs> let me ask you this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Good point. Okay, Elizabeth, let me ask this. Um... Are there other, let's just wait to be in neutral position, good. Are there other entities like yourself in this house? Yes. Yes, okay. Let me ask you, 
Oh my goodness. She's pointing. That's her mother. Mm -hmm. Or that's Abby. I'm not sure. Okay. Elizabeth, we just saw where you pointed to the picture. That was incredible. You've yeah. not pointed in that way all night. Is that a picture of you and your mother? Is that a picture of you and your mother? Yeah, you said birth mother. Yeah, your, your mother who gave birth to you. No. Kind of no, you're trying to tell us something. Straighten out for me. And she was correct. During our visit to the Fall River Historical Society the next day, we saw that same picture. The docent identified it as indeed a photograph of their birth mother, Sarah. But it was not Lisbeth in the picture with her. It was her sister, Emma. Stunning, really. It seemed that she was being entirely truthful with us. And it had been a complicated answer. Yes, it was her mother, but no, it wasn't her. We had asked her if that was a picture of her and her mother. At that point, we could see that she was having difficulty answering some questions with just a yes or a no. Understandably, just like answering about the photo. Think about it. Not many of us could answer in this manner when telling the tale of our very complicated and nuanced lives. That is the problem with dowsing rods. We suggested taking another tact to get to know her better. Do you find it frustrating trying to answer just yes or no questions? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> I, that's what I'm thinking. Um, you're not being cagey. You're not being dishonest. There's just some things, a lot of things aren't just Quite yes or no. Yes. That's right. I'll tell you what. Um, we would like to find out um, the other entity that is here. Um, but we came primarily to speak to you. We're going to try another method that will give you a way to talk to us in words and not just yes or no. Would you like that? Would that make you happier? Yes. Okay, give us a couple minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. We decided to employ the Estes Method. Many of you may be familiar with this rather revolutionary tool recently developed to aid in more direct communication with spirits and entities. But for those who don't know, this is what was going to happen. I would put on a pair of noise-canceling headphones, and we would pipe in white noise from a spirit box, so I couldn't hear the questions. The idea is that the entity can answer questions through manipulating the static and convey those answers to the receiver, which was me. I would be able to hear her answers through the headphones, and then I would say them out loud to Lori. And again, it's important to note, I could not hear Lori's questions. That said, I took a crack at it with very little success. I could hear very few responses, so we decided to swap roles. I would now be the questioner and Lori would be the receiver. And again, Lori could not hear my questions this time. How about your favorite animal? Just so we can tell that this is, that you, that 
that you're there and you've figured out how to hear my question and speak it through Lori. You're gonna have to use that little box to give the word to Lori's ears so she can relay it and receive it. Dad, wow, was that clear? Did your dad find out about your relationship with a woman? One. We we came here to Dad to to figure very out very clear exactly what what happened, and you know we we didn't want you know this place is famous Dad. and you're famous because of you know your dad's death and your stepmother's death and your trial. But we came here to find out about your story. So what is it about your dad? Did he find out your secret or? Was there something else involving your dad? Can you give us another word? Water. <laughs> Soap. Did that make you feel dirty? Settle down. What is your name? Do you prefer Elizabeth? Do you? What do you want to be called? That's what I'm asking. Still afraid. Oh, I have goosebumps. Still afraid of what? Of using your name? Or still afraid to talk to us? Him. Him. Who might him be? And why was she still afraid? With few intimate relationships with men during her life, we don't think it is too presumptuous to conclude that she was referring to her father, who exactly was this man. Andrew Jackson Borden was born in 1822, would marry twice, the first time to Sarah Morse in 1845. She would give him three daughters, Emma, Alice, and Lizzie. Alice did not survive infancy. Sarah would die in 1863 of what was reported as uterine congestion. Ouch, I think. That's probably gotta hurt. Two years later, he would marry a second time to Abby Durfee Gray, described as a 37-year-old plump spinster. More on the word spinster later, plump or otherwise. The Borden name represented one of the best regarded and exalted families in all of Fall River. But in an age of primogeniture, Andrew's great-uncle Thomas had inherited most of the family's fortune. Consequently, Andrew's father Abraham found a modest living as a fishmonger and peddler, leaving only the family house on Ferry Street to Andrew upon his death. Indeed, they might have had a prestigious family name in Fall River, 
but Andrew's side of the family would certainly be known as a lesser Borden. They would not live upon the hill, where his other Borden cousins and other such wealthy families would build their sprawling mansions that overlook the Taunton River and down their nose at the lesser families literally below them, and disdain the growing number of Irish and Portuguese immigrants who lived at the bottom of the hill amidst the bustling seaport shore. The actual physical topography of Fall River was a literal representation of class status. Andrew Borden would move his family to 2nd Street from his father's home, living right smack in between the inheritors and the immigrants. But here's the rub. By the middle of his life, Andrew Borden had certainly earned and saved enough to easily have built a sprawling mansion upon the hill and join the social circles enjoyed by his wealthy cousin. Regarded by others and by his own account, he was a self-made man. Others, though, would say he was a miser, close-fisted and hard. Lean and gaunt, he looked and acted as if he himself might have inspired the Dickens character, Ebenezer Scrooge. He began his career as a furniture maker and also a builder of burial cases and coffins. It was rumored about town that Andrew Borden was so cheap that he whacked off the bottom part of the legs of the deceased put in his care, just to save on the cost of lumber. We have no official documentation of that, but it appears that whether it was true or not, this was the impression Andrew Borden left upon his fellow townsfolk. And in the end, what an irony that would be. We have said it many times before, but indeed, karma can be a bitch, wax included. When the family moved into the Second Street home in 1871, he had the water faucets removed from every room, leaving only the large sinks in the kitchen and the cellar serviced only by cold water. He eventually connected the house to the city water supply, giving the family their only water closet in the cellar where every morning they would dump their chamber pots. He could have afforded many more amenities for his house and family, but saw them only as extravagances. Not only did they not live on the hill, but they were living in less luxury than the majority of their middle-class Irish and French-Canadian immigrant neighbors. He would make smart investments in commercial and residential real estate, and even eventually construct, without borrowing a dime, the A.J. Borden Building, an imposing and impressive representation of his wealth. By the time of his death, he was worth a quarter million dollars, which would be the equivalent to eight million today. Elizabeth and Emma would chafe at their father's miserly ways over the years. Their weekly allowance was $4, half that of the typical local textile spinning worker. And Andrew refused to spend money in any way on entertaining or receiving business acquaintances or even neighbors for dinner, let alone any soirees that the daughters might have dreamed of. According to author Kara Robertson, for all intents and purposes, both Elizabeth and Emma had been put into a social quarantine. The average age of marriage for women in Fall River was 22. There is no record of either sister being courted, or even any gentleman callers. 
both would remain unmarried for their entire lives. One does have to wonder, since they were considered from a good family and no doubt considered marriageable, why did neither sister marry? Was this their own personal choice or that of their fathers? Or were they simply so socially isolated that no such opportunity ever presented itself? During Lisbeth's trial, contemporary journalist Julian Ralph would say this, There is a peculiar and wretched phase of life in New England suffered by the daughters of the well-to-do New England men who seem never to have enough no matter how rich they become, whose houses are little more than cheerful jails, and whose womenfolk had, from a human point of view, better be dead than to be born into these fortunes. Crime seems to attend that phase and point it out relentlessly as the knife of a surgeon is aimed at a cancerous growth. Nail head. Lisbeth taught Sunday school and would become an active member of many charitable groups in Fall River, temperance unions and women's church groups, even the ladies' fruit and flower mission, and was well-respected for it. She sought social connection, particularly in the company of women, outside of the home, and was yet relegated to volunteerism. A worthy cause, but it did not help her financial situation. The psychological, emotional, and economic tension in the household would flare up five years before the murders when Andrew gave Abby's family money to purchase a house. The sisters saw it as a betrayal. They were denied the most minimal of extravagances, but Abby's family was being taken care of. They believed that their financial security, as unmarried women, was being thrown away on people who were not even blood relatives. This growing rage would not only be directed at Andrew, but maybe even more so, Abby. From that moment on, the household would take on a dark and cold aura. Emma and Lisbeth would no longer dine in the morning or evening with Abby and Andrew. Lisbeth, as it would be even noted in her trial, started calling Abby Mrs. Borden instead of mother from that point on. After a mysterious robbery of some of Abby's jewelry from her and Andrew's bedroom, it was more or less surmised that Lisbeth herself had taken it, and Andrew notified the police to drop the case. But now, each Borden would lock their own bedroom doors at night, distrustful of each other. It was a family now self-imprisoned. One might even say, entombed. Elizabeth herself moved her own bed against the door to Andrew and Abby's bedroom, obviously feeling that a simple locked door was no longer enough. Being in that house, we will tell you, the entire Borden family's sleeping quarters were so very close, and yet they seemed to have lived their individual lives miles away from each other. In 1892, Andrew was approaching 70 years of age, Elizabeth and Emma, respectively, 32 and 42. Understandably, the daughters were both, more than likely, anxiously concerned about their future. Had Andrew made a will? To whom would the inheritance be given? Would they be left to the whims of Abby and her family? Or even worse, to the authority of the men in that family? Who would control and govern their lives? And one could even say, their bodies, should they not be given any money for the safety and comfort of their future. 
This was not a case of two unmarried women being petty or greedy about money. Their very lives would depend upon Andrew's decision. Then, on August 3rd of 1892, their uncle John Morse, their birth mother Sarah Borden's brother, would come for a visit, and their family situation would take a very dark and bloody turn. Elizabeth would recall, in her sworn testimony during the murder inquiry, that she had not seen her uncle, but heard him talking with Abby and Andrew around 3 p.m. She said that their voices had annoyed her, and she shut her bedroom door to drown out the conversation. What were they talking about? Later that afternoon, Morse would leave the house to visit family and Andrew's Swansea farm. Was he possibly viewing a property that he might soon own himself? The fact that the trip took place that same day is suspicious. Morse was the only male family member Andrew trusted and kept within his confidence. Andrew certainly didn't trust his own family nor Abby's. Morse never married nor had children and was generally considered an unsuccessful farmer and horse trader who had also been trained and worked as a butcher. With his ragged beard and shallow gray bloodshot eyes, he was described as a long, lanky, hard-featured fellow who dressed like a scarecrow and ate like a cormorant. According to author Kara Robertson, he was regarded as a very eccentric and peculiar man. His only seeming asset to Andrew was that he was considered family and, more importantly, male. Would this be the man to which Elizabeth and Emma would be turned over for the rest of their lives? It is very possible that the conversation overheard by Elizabeth between her strange Uncle John, Abby, and Andrew on the afternoon of August 3rd was the last straw. Elizabeth would tell the story of the gruesome events of August 4th, 1892, this way. Around 9 o'clock in the morning, she rose and came downstairs and ate alone as Andrew, Abby, and Uncle John, who had returned the night before from Swansea, had already eaten, and Morris had left again to visit his niece and nephew on Way Bossett Street. Emma was away visiting family in Fairhaven. Andrew left for work around 9.15 a.m. Abby then directed their live-in Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan, and remember that name, to wash all of the house windows, and she set about the outside portion of that task immediately. Abby then told Lisbeth that she was going upstairs to make the bed in the second floor guest room where John had slept the night before. Elizabeth began heating up the flats in the kitchen to iron some handkerchiefs. Time passed with Elizabeth waiting for the flats to heat and reading a magazine or two. Sometime around 10.45 a.m., Andrew Borden unexpectedly came home finding the front door locked. Bridget Sullivan, having started on washing the inside windows in the house, answered the door as Elizabeth stood at the top of the stairs. Andrew was not feeling well. As a matter of fact, the entire family was not feeling well, as they had all suffered what was presumed to be food poisoning from some bad swordfish they had eaten a couple of nights before. After letting him in, Bridget herself would go up to her room in the attic to lay down. 
Andrew went first upstairs to his room and then came downstairs where he fatefully decided to take a short nap on the hair upholstered sofa that sat in the sitting room next to the kitchen. According to Elizabeth, she then decided to go out to the barn that was just behind the house to look for some lead. She was going on a fishing trip with some of her women church friends on Monday and needed the lead to create some sinkers for her fishing line. After that, she walked to the pear orchard that was just beside the barn to leisurely eat some pears. One note here. These are the only two points in the yard where Elizabeth would not have had the front door and eye shot. When she returned to the house, she found her father's blood-soaked body on the couch, having suffered from multiple blows. She called immediately to Bridget that someone had murdered her father. Bridget ran downstairs and was ordered by Elizabeth to go get Dr. Bowen, the family doctor who lived just down the road on 2nd Street. Bridget quickly did as she was told. Elizabeth wandered to the open front door and called to their neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, who lived across the street. Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. That's pretty much where Elizabeth's account of the murders ends. Others would now step into the bloody crime scene and offer their own versions. The police were called. But nowhere is it documented who exactly called or when. Mrs. Churchill immediately asked Elizabeth where she had been when the murders were committed. Elizabeth explained about the barn, the sinkers, and the pears. And she added that she had heard a strange noise, and that is what prompted her to return to the house and find her father dead. Mrs. Churchill then asked, Where's Abby? Elizabeth replied vaguely that, Abby had earlier received a note and went to visit a sick friend. She did not know, though, specifically, who that sick friend was. Soon, Bridget returned to the house, and they would be joined by close family friend Alice Russell and the aforementioned Dr. Seabury Bowen, who quickly examined Andrew's body and wounds. He was visibly shaken and left immediately to wire Emma, who was still in Fairhaven. Bridget was agitated and nervous. Where is Abby? She too inquired, even suggesting that they contact Abby's sister to see if she knew where Abby was. Now, Lisbeth replied that she thought she had heard her come home and go upstairs. This was a shocking statement to Mrs. Churchill, who had been there the whole time and certainly had not seen Abby return. Elizabeth's story was already starting to unravel. Mrs. Churchill and Bridget headed upstairs to find Abby. And they found her indeed. About halfway up the staircase, they glanced over and could clearly see under the guest room bed to where Abby Borden lay, dead. Mrs. Churchill ran downstairs to inform Elizabeth and Alice Russell of the second gruesome discovery. Oh, said Elizabeth, I shall have to go to the cemetery by myself. That was all she said. The police would arrive one by one as the news spread throughout the town that Andrew Borden had been hacked to pieces. 
Soon officers would fill the house, and so would the neighbors as they traipsed through the sitting room, gawking breathlessly at the mangled dead body on the couch, and some even going upstairs to see Abby. Hundreds of people would gather in front of the house, and by the next morning there would be 1,500. It was hardly a secure crime scene, even by lax Victorian standards. Emma would arrive home that afternoon, but there's no documented record of her response to the grisly scene or any initial conversation with Lisbeth. Dr. Bowen would sequester Emma and Lisbeth in their bedroom suite, allowing no one in without his permission, even the police. Although he eventually relented and finally allowed the police to question Lisbeth and search their bedrooms and even examine the clothes Lisbeth was wearing and those that still hung in her closet. And the police would not find an axe, but multiple dusty hatchets in the basement, some that appeared to have blood and hair upon them. And then there was another handleless hatchet, which appeared to have been covered in ashes, unlike the other ones covered in dust. The police would confiscate them all as evidence, and Uncle John, too, would arrive back at the residence that afternoon. Only two things were clear at the end of the day. Because of the nature of the coagulated blood upon her body and in her hair, it was ascertained quickly that Abby had been killed first, around 9.30 a.m. Andrew Borden had been slain around 11 a.m., and only two people were home at the time of the murders, Lisbeth and Bridget Sullivan. And how did a murderer elude both women in the house for the hour and a half it took to kill Abby and Andrew? And on top of that, all of the doors to the house had been locked. Still, the residents of Fall River went to bed in fear that night, many of them sure that a crazed homicidal maniac was loose in their city. It was said the cry of murder swept through Fall River like a typhoon. One journalist suggested that Jack the Ripper had finally come to America. By the next morning, the police had rounded up many of their usual suspects, mostly immigrants and well-known vagrants. But all seemed to have ironclad alibis. The police would actually have to free John Morse from a mob that threatened to kill him as a rumor spread that Uncle John was the murderer. However, he had a solid account of his whereabouts during the time of the murder that could be independently verified. The cries then quickly went up to hang Bridget Sullivan. Surely it must have been the Irish maid that did this. Xenophobia was a deep part of the Fall River culture, and Bridget would fit perfectly into their hateful, paranoid bigotry. But it was Elizabeth herself that vouched for Bridget and proclaimed her innocence both publicly and to the police. Elizabeth's status as even a lesser of the Fall River elite families could clear the suspicion of Irish immigrant Bridget in an instant. And no doubt Bridget understood this completely. Elizabeth might have privilege enough to save others from the possibility of hanging, but she would soon see she did not have enough status to save herself. Andrew and Abby's funeral took place two days later at the house on Saturday, August 6th. It was a small affair with close to 75 people crowded into the sitting room where their black cloth draped cedar coffins were displayed. There was no singing and very few remarks. The family continued on to the graveyard but remained in the carriages. And after the coffins were placed in the respective graves, 
the family and the pallbearers departed. Then, without the knowledge or permission of the family, policemen returned the caskets to the hearses and took both of the bodies away. By the following Tuesday, an unofficial inquiry was held. It was a secret proceeding not open to the public. Bridget was one of the first to take the stand and was a cooperative witness. District Attorney Hosea Knowlton questioned her and her story remained consistent and was in line with what she had previously told police officials. And her story was virtually the same as Elizabeth's had been. She was allowed to leave the stand and straight afterward she went back to the Second Street house, gathered her things, and never stepped foot in that house again. Uncle John Morse would also testify and confirm that Andrew had indeed talked with him about making out his will, but would later disavow this statement. Andrew Borden's safe was cracked and searched. No will was ever found. Elizabeth took the stand at 2 p.m. Because it was an inquiry, she was not allowed to have the family lawyer, Andrew Jennings, at her side. Her answers were cagey and inconsistent, and seemingly her memory was muddled. At times, she answered Knowlton with nonsensical answers and even became belligerent. Knowlton would ask, do you remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home? Elizabeth would answer, I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from another. And then she blurted out that she couldn't give information that she didn't have because she looked at Knowlton and said, I don't know what your name is. And then would comment to a question about her breakfast with the answer of maybe she had some cookies. Maybe she didn't. To those in the courtroom, she appeared mentally ill and undeniably insane. Everything now pointed directly to her guilt. It was a disastrous performance. In hindsight, had her fate depended only upon her inquiry testimony... Elizabeth Borden would have been hanged. But ultimately, as the judicial process would proceed, a judge ruled that her inquiry testimony was inadmissible at her official trial. The reason was simple, but jaw-dropping. Dr. Bowen, it seemed, had not only been trying to protect her, but had also been pumping her up with morphine since the afternoon of August 4th in an effort to keep her calm and sedated. Elizabeth Borden wasn't crazy or insane at the inquiry. She was plastered out of her mind. But that did not matter at the time. On Thursday, August 11th, exactly one week after the murders, an arrest warrant was issued for Lizzie Andrew Borden. She was taken to the county jail in Taunton, just up the river, to a six-by-nine-foot cell with just a bed and a wash basin. Initially, the Fall River public, not having heard Elizabeth's testimony, came to her defense. They simply could not believe that a Borden had been arrested, let alone a Borden woman. Soon a new preliminary hearing would be held and then a grand jury convened. As a result, Elizabeth was indicted for the murder of both Abby and Andrew and now faced a very public, very grueling trial. That trial would start nearly a year later in New Bedford, Massachusetts on June 5, 1893. Elizabeth herself would remain incarcerated during the entire period, with mostly only meetings with her lawyer and daily visits from Emma. She would spend most of her time reading Dickens and Thackeray. 
As we described at the beginning of this series, the trial would create a national sensation and thousands gathered at the courthouse in the hopes of obtaining a seat. Andrew Jennings, the lead lawyer for the defense, decided quickly that Elizabeth should not testify at her own trial. They had dodged her befuddled and confused inquiry testimony and would not risk it again, even without the effects of morphine. But when it came time to plead, Elizabeth did not stammer or stutter. She proclaimed firmly and clearly, I am not guilty. The prosecution would basically commit to the line of, who else could have done it? The defense would counter with the fact that there was no blood found on Lisbeth or her clothes and no weapon confirmed to be the instrument of murder. It was very simple. They had no evidence at all to convict her. Lack of other suspects did not prove that Lisbeth committed the murders. The prosecution quickly became frustrated and became more brazen and bold with the presentation of their case. State's attorney Moody would try a piece of courtroom theater that would leave the entire room stunned. He reached for a large black bag and then announced to the courtroom, Such parts of the mortal remains of the victims as would tend to throw light either in the protection of innocence or the detection of guilt have been preserved, must be presented here. He then reached into his black bag and held high for everyone to see the cleaned and hatchet-scarred skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden. The cold, calm, self-possessed, aloof as a boot Elizabeth Borden swooned, and then she fainted. Thanks for listening, and join us again November 8th for the exciting, and maybe a little queer, conclusion of our Lizzie Borden series. Here's a preview. Um, did Emma's leaving have something to do with your friend Nance O'Neill? Yes. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q Files. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a fellow weirdo and leave a review.